one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is a story where Elijah the prophet is sitting in his house and his servant goes outside and suddenly sees that the whole, whole hills around the Elijah's little house are surrounded by a foreign army. There's an army there that that army has been sent particularly to come after Elijah and then the rest of God's people. And it's because the foreign king is fed up with Elijah. He's tired of Elijah's prophecies. He wants nothing more to do with him. And, and Elijah's sitting in the house. And he's sitting there. And his servant comes in and says, Master, look! And, and Elijah calmly comes to the door. Yeah. And he says, Lord, you open my servant's eyes. The servant looks out. And see behind this foreign army, all of the hills filled with angels, an angel army that completely surrounds this other earthly army. And for a moment, the serpent all of a sudden sees how big and how strong God is. And that in the midst of what seemed like circumstances that, that would overrun Elijah, this was the end. God's peace suddenly floods in. It's a fun story. 2 Kings chapter 6. You ought to read it sometime. Elijah ends up walking outside and strikes blind this foreign army. Ends up leading them into the heart of, of the, the Jewish uh, city nearby. Leads them in right to the king and says, here's your enemy. Now let's throw them a feast. And they serve this big feast to the enemy. And the enemy, their eyes are open and they suddenly realize what's happening. And they're blown away by the kindness and grace given to them. And they go back to their king and say, we're not fighting anymore. We're done. And there's peace in the land afterwards. But I want us to keep in mind that reaction of, of Elisha's servant, that panic that comes in when he sees all these enemies around him and he wonders, what in the world are we going to do? It looks like the end is coming. Elisha's calm response. Lord, open his eyes. In many sense, that is the book of Revelation in a nutshell. It is that panic sense of the world's going to overwhelm God's people. It's going to run them right out of the world. People are dying. And at the point that John's writing this letter, people are being brought into the Colosseum. <laughs> And Christians are being used as human torches. It's a time where there is outright persecution against the church. Something that still happens in our world today, although we don't experience it quite the same in this part of the world. Church tradition says that John is on the island of Patmos, which is in this letter, but that he's been exiled there because the Roman officials tried to burn him in oil and they didn't succeed. They put him in a pot of oil, according to church tradition, and expecting that he would die by being boiled to death, and he came out of it alive. And so the official said, we've got to put him as far away as we can. Let's send him to Patmos, which was a prison island at the time. And they sent him there, thinking that was silence. John's on this island. 
Just think about that for a moment. You've experienced persecution yourself physically. You've seen God's delivery, but now you're, you're marooned out in island, away from the churches and the people that you have loved, away from the communities that you have loved. And there really was no hope of getting off this island. The people you have loved and you have pastored and cared for are now facing persecution and they are dying. They are dying gruesome and awful deaths. You hear John crying out, Lord, Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, how long? Will you forget us forever? It's in that troubling space. It's in that space of of trouble, of doubt, of fear, of heaviness of heart, that this revelation begins to take place. And the revelation comes in a, a surprising way. It's a, it's a word of assurance to, to John in the midst of this time. And Jesus shows up in a way that John has never seen him before, with, with hair blazing, with eyes blazing, with with feet that are blazing. There's a, there's a sash on them. There's authority and power. If we listen to the spiritual uh, accounts, the last time John saw Jesus was probably about 50 years before this. And, and Jesus was ascending up into heaven. He was a normal man. John says at the start of his letter, of uh, First John, and we, we speak of the things that we know and we saw and we touched. We touched Jesus. We know what he was like in human flesh and in human form. And here is something powerful. It's a vision of Jesus right before him that, that causes him not just to tremble, but to, to literally fall down on the ground. Jesus stepping into the midst of John's sorrow. John's struggle, John's pain, and saying to him in a bold and strong way, I am here. I'm here with you right now in the midst of this brokenness. It's important for us to pause on that. Eugene Peterson has written a commentary on the book of Revelation. He calls it reverse thunder paying attention to all the turmoil in the world and how that, that seems to be rumbling around us. It says in the midst of that, God speaks and God shows up and says to his people, bold and strong, I'm with you. I've got you. He talks about the whole story of Scripture in that context. It says if we start with Scripture and we start with the beginning of Scripture, we, we come to this place at the end, at the end of Account where we hear God say, It's very good. And if we read the very end of Scripture, the end of chapter 22 here, if we listen to Jesus' story along the way, Jesus is saying, At the end, it will be very good again. And we're going to delight in God's presence, and all of creation will flourish. The trouble, Peterson says, is we live in between a very good and an unbelievably good in a place that makes no sense of either of those. We live in a place where it's hard to believe that it once was very good. We've lived in a place and a time where it's hard to believe that it will be very good again. 
our trouble, our trouble in time as we come, is on par in some sense with the same things that were happening at that time. Our brothers and sisters of ours who are dying day in and day out because they say the name of Jesus Christ. There's persecution that happens throughout the world. On the testimony of one or two other people who say, I saw that person read the Bible. And because of that, they're dragged off. They're persecuted. Some of them thrown in prison, some of them thrown in labor camps, some who physically are killed. But the trouble isn't just that. It isn't just the external, and it wasn't in John's time either. The troubles we carry are even, even more personal and tangible and accessible to us. We carry part of it with us that, that we too cry out with that Psalm 13 cry of how long, oh Lord, how long? I've listened to many of us. I've sat with many of you and listened as you talk about pain and struggle in your own family and in your own homes. Struggles with addictions. Struggles with children who won't speak to each other. Struggles with jobs that seem unstable and you don't know if you're going to have enough money to pay the bills next month or to put food on the table. Struggles in marriages that once seemed so sweet and joyful and now seem so bitter and cold. Struggles because our bodies bear brokenness within them. The number of times, and, and, and we've heard the litany of requests come up here before we were so and so as they have surgery this week, and so and so as they recover from surgery, we were so and so as their body continues to deteriorate. We name names week in and week out of people in our community whose bodies are failing. No, we don't name it quite as often or as publicly. We are well aware of others who have had struggles, lifelong struggles, in facing mental illness and mental health issues and challenges that have crippled them in terms of the relationships that they're in, in terms of being able to hold jobs, in terms of being able to trust and believe that God is faithful. These things are in our families and in our homes and in our church, and, and we feel the weight of this in-between time and space, the weight between saying there is a very good creation and the longing for that creation in our lives to be very good once again. We find ourselves in this space where we need to hear this promise in Revelation. We need to see Jesus come and stand in our midst as he did with John and say boldly and powerfully, even now I am with you. Even now in the midst of the brokenness and the struggle, I'm here. I've not abandoned you or left you on your own. I've got you. Do you notice what Jesus says to, to John along with the Alpha and the Omega in the beginning and the end? It's like he holds up a pair of keys and starts dangling. And oh, by the way, I've got the keys to death in the Hades. The things in your world that seem so permanent to de deny who I am, to deny the life I give, the things that seem to threaten you the most, the death itself, I've got in my hand. Because I once was dead, and I've overcome death. I'm alive. 
the book of Revelation unfolds in all sorts of different ways after that. But there's this powerful, powerful refrain that goes all the way through it. Of Christ holding the keys of death and Hades. The things that threaten God's people the most. The things where God's people say, Lord, where are you and when are you going to show up? And Jesus calmly says again and again, I've got it. It may not seem like it. It may feel like Isaiah or Elisha's servant that you're standing out there and you see all the trouble and all the brokenness in your own life and in the world around you. But trust me. Have eyes to see. I'm still at work. I'm still holding on to you. I've got you. And not even that, not even the worst thing the world can throw at you separate you from me. And then he gives the end of the story, which is why I had Joel read that as well. Because in the midst of this, we learn a longing. We learn a longing, not just, Lord, how long are you going to be? But we learn to long with the prayer of the church throughout the ages. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. It's really, in some sense, a simple prayer. It it can be said by any of us at any time. And lots of times we may be hesitant to say But Scripture ends with it. In the presence of the brokenness, in the presence of the struggle of the world, it gives us a simple prayer. A simple prayer to become part of our, our rhythm of life together. That we as a community of people who, who begin to recognize and who are struggling at times to recognize but who come back again and again to say, Jesus is Lord. And in the context of that confession that we would learn to pray together, come, Lord Jesus. This morning, we're going to practice that for just a moment. We're going to practice that together and it's going to involve a little bit of vulnerability on your part. We're going to take some time to pray that prayer. But in between saying, come Lord Jesus, I'm going to invite us to say out loud prayers that are on our hearts. I'll give an example. Many of us, and I've listened to many of us, some of you have emailed me in the last couple of weeks, how do we respond to the U.S. election? Right? In many ways, this book of Revelation is teaching us how to respond to the U.S. election. One, remember Jesus is Lord, and two, pray, come Lord Jesus. It's an echo of what was with Jesus' own prayer with, with his disciples that, that Cheryl rolled into the congregational prayer this morning. May your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I'm going to create some space here. We're going to pray together. I'm going to invite you to be vulnerable and voice out loud things in our world that seem broken. And every couple of minutes, I'll say, come Lord Jesus, and you can respond with, yes, come Lord Jesus. Make sense?